Hey friends, a quick note before we get into this episode, partially because it's incredibly appropriate for what we're going to be talking about later, but also because this just happened yesterday. But as most of you probably know, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld that President Trump's travel ban is constitutional. And I wonder how this will affect us in the coffee industry, particularly with the United States set to host a number of international competitions in 2019 in Boston. I have my feelings about it. I've tweeted about it, but I really want to know what other people think about it. So if you want to shoot us an email with your thoughts, bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com, or if you want to send us a recording, if you have a smartphone, it's actually really easy to do. And we'd love to compile some ideas, some stories, some perspectives that we maybe haven't heard from you. So please write to us, send us a message, and we look forward to listening to it and responding to you. Thanks. Welcome, friends, to this episode of Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. So a few weeks ago, I made a call on our social media for folks we should be interviewing. And my internet friend, Jenny, who I finally met for the first time, in real life at this year's SEA Expo suggested the work of Bonnie Amore. Uh, Jenny is a coffee consultant. She has an amazing website called Little Black Drink. And so I immediately went to go check out Bonnie's website and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, Bonnie is a queer travel writer who works on decolonializing travel culture. That's kind of the thesis of a lot of Bonnie's work. And they've appeared pretty much everywhere on CNN Travel, Teen Vogue, and anthologies like Outside the XY, Queer, Black, and Brown Masculinity, and in an upcoming anthology called Where We Stand, Brown and Black Voices That Speak the Earth, and their website, Bonnie Amore, B-A-N-I-A-M-O-R.com, is filled with articles about decolonializing travel. And... I don't know about you, but I've been told that I'm not a real coffee professional until I travel to a coffee producing country by at least a thousand different people. Coffee is almost always exported, so there's going to be some relationship between buying coffee and traveling to the places that coffee is grown. We even have kind of a colloquial term for that, going to origin. We all see the coffee shops that put pictures of children or farmers up on their walls or they use language about the farmers they work with in a way that maybe feels uncomfortable but we don't really know what to do with it. I think what Jenny saw and what I hope this episode explores is the relationship between coffee and travel. That it's complicated at best and probably broken in some ways. Before you dig into this episode I encourage you to read some of Bonnie's work. They just released an article in Bitch Magazine, and it's incredible. It's called The Heart of Whiteness on Spiritual Tourism and the Colonialization of Ayahuasca. I mean, read anything Bonnie has written, because we need to be thinking more about how we travel as an industry, and I am absolutely honored to share this episode with you. So please enjoy. So let's go a little bit uh, backwards on your story. So can you tell us a little bit about your travel writing, what you do and how you got into travel writing? Sure. So, um, I started writing travel kind of thinking about 
pushing myself professionally into the industry or whatever, when I had come back from Latin America for my first backpacking trip there, it was my first trip there, period. So my family's from Ecuador, and I went to Ecuador for the first time when I was 21. I went there with my family and met my family. Well, I just went with my mom, but I met my family. So it was, it was an important trip. You know, it's not just like, let me, you know, spin the globe and pick a place. Um, and I had been waiting my whole life to be there. So anyway, um, I had, I was like traveling for a while, uh, backpacking around in different countries in Latin America. And when I came back to the States, um, we were in the middle of a recession. I could not get work. Like things were tough. I just wanted to get back traveling. But anyway, I had, I was sitting with all of my experiences when I was traveling and all of it was just, there was just so much there. Like in travel culture, being at hostels, being you know, being around white people in Ecuador, being there for the first time, kind of dealing with being an other in a country that, you know, I thought of as home, and just all of these things came up that I really was interested. Like, it didn't occur to me immediately that I w- I'm like, oh shit, I got to write about all of this in a way that's public because I've always written. I've been traveling since I was you know like 15. Um, I started hitchhiking. I dropped out of school. So I was always writing and I was always traveling, but it wasn't until I came back from that trip that I was like reading travel writing and being like, okay, you know, I'm broke. I love to travel. I write, maybe I could do this shit. And I would read, you know, the, like the magazines, I would read these guys, these books. And I was just like, oh no, no, no. I need to, I'm I'm needed, you know, (laughs) my voice. There's a whole gap here that I can insert my voice in. I have things to say about this shit. What were you not seeing when you would read other travel writing at that time? Um, Anything that had to do with my experience, anything that I felt was substantial. I do. I I, I talk a lot about travel writing because I love it. It's honestly my favorite. I feel like avenue to talk about such the, the themes that fascinate me the most. And I think fascinate everyone else. Travel writing for me is a way of cheating. It's a way of talking about everything. You can talk about the environment, you can talk about family, you can talk about migration, you can talk about just like anything that happens, politics, um, as long as you kind of keep it in a context of movement and um, how it uh, impacts you. You know, so much of travel memoir is just like someone going somewhere else, talking about how it has changed them, what they think of it, blah, blah, blah. But people who do that, you know, are historically always been like, quote unquote, explorers, you know, white dudes who leave are part of a colonizing project come back writing their field notes of, you know, what they thought of the savages and the heathens and, you know, all all these indigenous and African people while, you know, the colonial project was happening um, from Europe into these other countries. So, you know, this genre has that legacy and all that carries on to today. So that's what I'm saying. I I don't see myself um, or anything that I felt was substantial being talked about because when we look at it now, it's not just a lack of representation. It's just... It's what is, it's like kind of being tied to the consumerist aspect of tourism. And that makes it also, uh, I feel like confines the genre and a lot of writing into a very positive place. It has to be very like, and this is what I learned and this is how it changed my life. It's just too flowery for me. There's a place for that, you know? But there should also be a place for us to talk about kind of uncomfortable things to look at ourselves and our privilege in other places and just call a spade a spade. Because, you know, that writing exists out there. I just feel like so many writers are just not, they don't have any perspective. And if you don't kind of reckon with 
who you are, uh, your race, your gender, where you're coming from nationally. In other places, you don't really have kind of the authority to talk about other places. You don't even have the authority to talk about how you are yourself in that place. I feel a lot of travel writing is very disconnected from what it's, I think, what it says that it's about and what it can be. I think there's so much opportunity and potential there. Um, I, I, I think that that lies with people of color. I think that lies with queer people and trans people and just more non-normative narratives to just feed it. You know, there's a lot of articles that have been coming out in the last like decade. People are just like, white guys are just like the death of travel writing. Like we're done. Like it's the same story over and over and over again. You know, it's just kind of like advertorial copy. And it's like, yeah, y'all killed it. You know, it's not dead. You're just so, you know, it's just like five people saying the same stuff all over and over again. I'm exaggerating, but that's how it feels. So we can really move it in a forward direction. I think you have to counter with all of those, confront all of those things for it, for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So on your website, you kind of define your mission statement or kind of the crux of your writing is decolonializing travel writing. Can we break down that term a little bit more for people who are maybe not really familiar with what, what that could mean or what that encompasses? Yeah. Um, well, it's actually decolonizing travel culture. I, I use the term travel culture because writing is just one part of it. The genre, the industry, the narrative um, is only one part of it, but it's a big part, right? Because when I'm talking about decolonizing travel culture, it's not, these narratives don't exist in a silo. Like I said, there's a whole history to this. And, you know, having these right, you know, people who are explorers, conquistadors, colonizers, whatever, go to these places and write these these letters, whatever, these books, reporting on, on you know, how kind of backwards and, and savage-like the people that, you know, they were colonizing were, it's uh, it's a part of a project, you know, it doesn't exist by itself. It's done in conjunction with um, genocide and enslavement and really violent things, you know, resource extraction and forced labor. So, um, and that is part of, you know, a longer history where there's imperialism happening. And even if, you know, colonizing countries pull out of, their, of, of places, you know, like India or whatever, for example, there is still all of the aftershocks. Everything is left with that country. So that history lives with us and it, and it lives in this writing. And with travel writing, it just seems like no one's, does anyone realize that there needs to be an update like to that narrative, you know? If it stays with the same people, it's gonna be like that. So um, decolonizing travel culture is not just about the writing, it's about how we talk about it. It's about how um, this is being done in conjunction with a colonialist imperialist project. It's uh, it's reinforcing, you know, uh, narratives. It's reinforcing oppression, really. You know, it, writing never exists by itself. And the other part of it is present day, you know, not just dealing with the aftershocks of what colonization did, <clears throat> you know, because it's still in progress. This is in progress in, in different parts of the world. It's not done. Uh, which I'm, I'm here in the United States and, you know, we still have Native people who are fighting for just to ha- like not be polluted, just to have rights over their land that is their land. You know, all, all this stuff is still happening. And with tourism, particularly the industry, it's very oppressive in a lot of places. It, it's, it's, it's a capitalist project, so it's going to be oppressive. And um, it's, it's uh, targeted toward tourists who we know is a certain class of people, just like travel writers are a certain class of people. Those are the same people. So they're the target, the consumers for um, 
in travel culture, in tourism. So what's being consumed? It's other people's cultures. It's uh, appropriating, you know, those cultures. It's going into these places um, and creating entire tourist zones, resort zones, you know, just whole neighborhoods or places taken over, being occupied by foreigners who are white, who are wealthy, who are tourists, who are coming in and leaving um, footprints. You know, a lot of baggage, just like they did with colonization. So it's, it's, uh, decolonizing travel culture is a way of confronting how this is all tied together and, um, how it needs to be interrupted basically for the, for freedom of certain people, people being displaced because of hotels, people being underpaid, so much sexual assault happens in, in hotels, all of that. There's so many problems with tourism. There's so many problems with travel rating and there's so many problems with travel culture. I'm really focused on and interested in is the way that we use language and symbols. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Like, what are the ways that we use the terms in travel to continue this neo-colonialist structure, the way that we use imagery to keep this up? How does language reinforce, like what language in particular kind of reinforces this oppressive stuff? Yeah. A lot. So <laughs> uh, a lot in travel writing, you, what I was talking about before about it, you know, people talking about how it's dying and it's so narrow and it's being in a silo and it, how it's confined in my eyes. It's like you can literally look at a thousand blogs and a thousand articles and mad like magazines, you know, uh, glossies. And it's some of the same freaking words, you know. There's always like a country of contrasts and there's always like a land before time or like uh, off the beaten path or I don't know, all these kinds of things that are just, you know, it, it's the same freaking words. Um, and anyway, uh, I'm just like complaining about that. I'm just like, ah, be creative. <laughs> so that's what it is. There's a lot of like lack of creativity, but it's also because there's just laziness to me. I know that's not what you're asking, but I'm just complaining. No, that's um, fine. But no, hearing, <laughs> hearing, like you're, like this is like the world that you're in. So hearing what, what's troubling to you is really important. Well, it's just, it, it, I just feel like it's lazy, unimaginative. I feel like travel is the least imaginative genre of like any, any, anything's happening in literature and writing. So um, a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine, I had you know this. Um, series of interviews that I have on my website um, with different kind of travel writers of color or people in the, uh, in, in travel um, doing cool things. And I had this like two-part interview with my friend, India, who um, we were going through an, a glossary. We did an ABC of problematic language and travel. And it's not like, don't ever use this word again or anything like that. It's just like, here we're pointing out some things that are coded. And we understand, you know, maybe as people of color, maybe people who are female assigned or whatever, what that means when we're reading. You know, we read between the lines. We just wanted to call out some language that uh, is kind of obviously used in, um, and overused in these ways that so much that they lose their meaning. Because, again, so much of travel writing is advertorial copy. There's a, there's, it's, it's very kind of capitalist and consumerist in nature. Whether or not someone is selling something, they just kind of reuse that language. Authentic is one of them. That's a that's a big thing. Authenticity is like such a like a branding term. Like it's just a like what what's the word? It's just it, it's such a fake ass word. It's so funny because it's about being real. So um, there's uh, we we go through different words and kind of try to unpack what do they mean and why are they using it? There's nothing wrong with the word authentic, but why is there a push in travel writing to just like 
to call things authentic? Why does someone have to have more of an authentic relationship or experience when they're traveling than the other? It brings up a whole lot of problems. You know, there's underneath there um, that have to do with just using this one word, um, for example, that have to do with, you know, being a, a traveler and not a tourist and being a real traveler and going like deeper, or, like being super immersed, you know, there's like this competitive nature of that shit. And I feel like the word authentic is tossed around to just be like, well, I, you know, met these indigenous people who have never met a white person. And I've been to this far off place that is far from where I'm from, but it's like, it exists. It's not like, you know, the way that people say Timbuktu, it's like, that's an actual fucking place. Like you can't say, you can't use that as a way of saying nowhere. So that's like that. You know what I mean? These are code words that need to be unpacked that are constantly, you know, in our language, even Mecca, you know, Mecca is an actual place. It's used a lot just to mean like a, a, a like a important place, but it's an actual place. I, I, I don't think that that should be used all the time um, as kind of a metaphor, but that's a least oppressive example. The article that you referenced um, with with your friend, um, I'm looking at it right now with India Harris. If you have, if you're listening to this right now, like please just stop and go look at this interview because it's probably one of my favorite interviews that you have on this website. Although all of them are excellent, um, because it really breaks down what this coded language is like, like the idea of budget traveling, and it's like you can't just call things cheap, like. It, it all, it, it feels like all of the language is about being, centering your experience as like the prime experience and then every other experience around you is othered. There is no self-reflection or perspective. It's like, this is my experience and all these words are kind of othering. It's about distance from and to an experience. Um, so one would be like C for colorful. There's this, you know, people call certain places or cultures or whatever colorful. Like, what does that mean? Are you calling, like, whiteness, like, white? Like, you know, what's colorful? You know, it, it, they're talking about markets or, I don't know. It, it's it's a way, it's like kind of, I think I used the word in, in that interview, I was talking about, like, soul or something. Like, when people, sometimes white people will say something soulful, they just mean black. Like, there's just, like, black people there. Or, or I don't know. There's these cold words that are super weird, you know? Um I think there's other language like that, but basically it's, it's, we kept coming back to the same thing where it's just like, it's about, you know, this might be, um, it, it's just kind of, uh, it's coming back to the place of, of not understanding that what's foreign to you is not foreign to other people, that you are the foreigner, that um, it, having some sort of perspective around that. I know I'm, I'm kind of tongue tied, but uh, the gist of it, if you read through, <laughs> read through this freaking article, listeners, you will understand, hopefully, you know, if you're not really reactionary to it, we're just going through words that we use all the time and just wondering why is it overused, particularly in travel and what are they trying to say? The, the heart of the problem in, is that, uh, you know, in travel writing, people really just, it's white people. White people are entitled, usually, you know, men are in, they, there's an entitlement to what they do. So um, it's kind of like, you know, people don't, can, you can go like super far in the world. You can be surrounded by people of color. And you still will have your mindset so colonial, so white, so like I am the and they are the other, you know, no matter where you are in the world. Even if you're here in the United States, you know, people will view you as the other, you know, me or whatever. It's about um, seeing yourself as normative, 
as the default and the master and everything else being kind of othered and far away and different and quirky and weird. You know, Bizarre Foods is a show. That's what we're saying. Like, that's a weird way to talk about food. It's bizarre to you, not to everyone. It's bizarre to you because you are foreign. So that's a lack of self-reflection that is pointing out an entitlement that is based in, rooted in racial and gendered and different kind of like power dynamic constructs. What are things that you as a queer non-white person have had to worry about that you haven't maybe seen talked about as widely or are concerns that the majority of travel writing doesn't really seem to address? Like one of the things I'm thinking about is you recently wrote an article about safety and how safety is often defined in a very white cis female perspective. Uh, I mean, everything. You know, everything, it's not, it's, it doesn't, if someone, if like a white writer wants to kind of be quote unquote inclusive and just be like, oh, let me think about other people and how this affects them. That's not enough to me. Like that's great um, for travel. My whole, you know, the focus of my work is completely decolonizing. I think it has to, you know, people who are coming from a certain perspective are going to give you the advice that you need, you know? And that, is, as I point out in the article, that is happening, you know, especially particularly black women have really taken over part of the internet that just works for them They and made their own brands, doing their own trips that um, is done from their perspective and therefore, you know, some maybe, you know, the issues of the travelers who go with them are going to be addressed because they know what the heck they're going through. You know what I mean? They have particular concerns when they travel. Um, so that's going to be addressed because another black woman is helping organize this or another black woman is writing the advice to you on the blog or et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, if, if someone says is writing about safety for everyone, you know, and not thinking about, again, a lack of self-respect of reflection, a lack, a lack of perspective because, and why, why, right? Why don't you want to have the conversations? Because no one wants to talk about why. No, you don't want to talk about, you know, I'm the one in power, especially, you know, women, especially white women, you know, it's like. And travel is this whole thing, like, I'm oppressed, like, the solo female traveler is just, like, such a powerful babe, and she's going abroad to take over the world. It's like, okay, but, um, like, that's a very, you know, you, it, it's being, like, so over-identifying with one way that you're oppressed can really kind of, you, you're trying to not look at these other ways that you have a lot of uh, leeway, privilege to do things. You know what I mean? For me... That's what I'm saying. For me, what would have to change is not the content, but who's writing the content and who's in power of what gets disseminated and where, how much space does it get to take up. That's why I just write my own stuff. And um, I, I just wanted to address what I care about. You know, I, I don't, if you look at my work, I'm not really a classic travel writer. I don't really write advice or guides or anything like that for traveling like me, because honestly, my story, my experience is just so particular that I don't know if if what I write would actually, you know, um, work, what it could be useful for certain people. So I wish that people who write, you know, guides, books, white travel writers, whatever, had that kind of sense. A big part of decolonizing travel culture and, and particularly the narrative is uh, I feel like expanding the genre to include more stories about migration and movement in diaspora, things that apply to us, maybe like a lot of people of color or immigrants or whatever, that is travel writing, you know? We, we talk about the same things that, you know, people in maybe travel writing workshops or memoir um, 
say that they're talking about, you know, how a journey can change you, how it changes your family. There's just so much there. So I feel like if I heard more from those voices and if we recentered narratives on migrants and people who travel the most, which is people of color on this earth, you know, that that would that would apply to me in some sort of way. That's why I had to leave kind of like travel writing, you know, the, the travel bookshelf at the bookstore. You know, you have to go to like the African-American section or you have to go to some other section to find narratives of movement and journeying that I can relate to. You have to go elsewhere. What I would see, what I would like to see in travel writing is not having to go elsewhere to just reclaim this space as like, this is what I do. This applies completely to my life. Um, no one is writing. No one is going to write this shit for me. But there's a lot of us and there's a lot of those narratives out there. Let's kind of like push them into the space or, you know, inspire more people to write about them because they don't have really anywhere to um, place these stories. You know, there's there's no I don't think there's one child editor of color who is like paid in a major publication in existence today. I think what you're saying about having your own experiences and trying to find that narrative is really powerful, like even thinking and even going beyond like what travel normally is, like we really think of travel writing, I think now as, as tourism writing, which I think is very different. And it's interesting that you kind of expand that definition that the people who do travel the most are people of color. The people that do travel the most are people who leave their countries. Like that's travel as well. Um, and that's not the travel writing we're really seeing. Um, I want to shift gears just a teeny bit because there's another article that you wrote that was really powerful to me and I think really translates to what happens in coffee and kind of melds both the coffee world and your work really well together. It's on Bitch Media. It's called Spend and Save, the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saviorism. And in this article, you talk about kind of this idea where people in perhaps Western civilizations will talk about experiences that they have in other countries and maybe start co like companies or organizations trying to sell products from those countries and how the whole system of trying to solve issues almost relies on this like capitalist system that oppresses people to begin with. Um, which is kind of really true in coffee as well, since coffee is naturally a product that is grown by black and brown hands in Central South America, Africa, and the Pacific Rim mostly, and then is almost like casually visited by like Westerners and white people and we kind of write this narrative of like, we're saving farmers, like we're paying higher prices, so we're doing something better. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about the article that you wrote and how this false narrative of like saving people in other countries is really harmful and incorrect, really. Yeah, it's um uh, the point of the essay and the way that I feel about white saviorism is... um. It's just a, a front, really, it's just a front, you know, because um, it's not just reinforcing the problem. It's like you're intentionally using a lie. No one wants to save anyone. You just want to make money. Saviorism is a part of, um, it's a, how would you say, like, in, this is a capitalist kind of uh, trick. The problem with me, white saviorism is not, it's that it's a front. It feels like very scam-y. 
um, because it's not about helping anybody. It's about using the lie that you care about these poor, you know, these poor, you know, people of color, these souls, these, these, you know, let's help them. You just want to make money off of them. And that narrative is a very longstanding one that white people have access to that you could just use um, as a marketing tactic to, you know, make money and reinforce the same things that you say um, in your, you know, language that uh, you're trying to stop. But, you know, the, the thing with white savior, it's not about stopping anything. It's about keeping people in the relationship of dependence upon foreign powers um, and, you know, just selling it to kind of like bleeding heart liberal kind of types uh, who want the better option. You know, unfortunately, in, in the capitalist landscape, there's not that many great options to buy directly from people the things that you want. But maybe that should reframe, you know, that should bring you uh, consumers to reframe their their thought process of, of what they want. Why do they want this authentic, quote unquote, shit from far away? Um, you know, how they're getting it. You know, what is the cost? What is the cost of what you want? Um, the real cost, you know, uh, that's what that essay is about. And that's what I'm interested about when it comes to saviorism and marketing. In coffee, when you look at maybe a coffee bag or if you look at a website, so much of the narrative is centered around this idea that we are going to coffee farms and somehow doing something better for the farmers. And then like, but then also framing it in this very like, we're privileged and humbled to be working with these farmers. And I feel like that dichotomy is so interesting that we pretend like we're humbling ourselves in order to make a profit off of other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the nice face of the colonizer, you know? It's just um, like, I'm just gonna show myself to your audience, but this is who I am. Like, I'm not a fan of liberalism or neoliberalism. It, it, to me, it's just a softer kind of like oppression than maybe conservatives have. So I feel like that's that's what we're talking about here. It's just a nicer kind of way. I feel like it's white guilt, right? It's kind yeah. of like um, capitalizing off of white guilt, making it a marketing language and being like, oh, you know, these are our friends. You know, I know his mom or I've been there and like, I don't know. You know, you take a picture with the kids or whatever and you kind of feign um, a deep relationship that is based on care that is actually based on money. And, um, and commerce, just like any other big corporation would have, but you're doing it on a small scale and calling it, you know, better. Maybe it is kind of better. Maybe you're, you're paying someone like a dollar more than they would paid, would be paid. And in all of my research, you know, I, I, I do see all the nuance. There's nuance, but it's the narrative that I want to counter that is, you know, don't fool yourself into thinking you're, you're doing something that different. Because what you're doing when you're using kind of images on your packages, whether it be coffee or, you know, a kind of like 10,000 villages, that's one kind of store chain that is fair trade uh, products around the world. Um, it's, it's, you're just using people of color as props, as marketing and using that language of just like um, knowing them, caring about them, having offensive relationship with them, that's all a part of the sale. Um, so I think a spade should be called a spade. And you know, if, you, if you're gonna pay someone a little bit extra, maybe be more transparent about that. I think transparency is a big thing that's lacking from fair trade, the industry, and that's exactly what they purport to be about. So it's very flawed. But I also, you know, I want to bring it back. This is that essay, you know, it's, it's, it's about, it's a feminist essay. All my essays are feminist. But it really is about how consumerism, especially in the hands of white women, 
is is kind of weaponized. They can usually weaponize their femininity. This is kind of feminized uh, capitalism where it's like softer and nicer um, and it can seem like we care and it's about um, caring and compassion and all that stuff, compassionate capitalism. That is a way that these things can be sold. I don't know as much about coffee because I know that there's like a lot of dudes are really about their bean juice. But in fair trade, it's a lot of, you know, women owned businesses. It's a lot about women empowering, empowering women, quote unquote who are living under the boot of patriarchy in these really oppressive, like, you know, countries of brown and black people. Um, that language, that's called saviorism, and it's very oppressive. They kind of rely on an outdated and unnuanced view of the experiences of women of color abroad. It, it's all super generalized. And um, that outdated stereotype is what is dependent upon to sell stuff. You know, when we come to the coffee sales, you you think about Juan Valdez or all these, like, you think of what, I think consumers in the United States think of uh, these farmers as, like, always, like, an older Colombian dude who's, like, noble and, you know, he's, like, in the earth and the soil every day and he's just wiping his brow with his handkerchief. I don't know. It's all about a, a creating a visual. It's all about selling kind of um, it's something that seems far away that is outdated and stereotyped and depending on that narrative um dehumanizing those people so that you can kind of continue to sell stuff and that's a big problem there that's the same thing that's the same narrative that the bigger corporations are taking advantage of it's the same narrative that you know it, it informs policy that is made in this country imperialist policies that actually oppress women of color abroad worse than maybe their own men i think that the narrative that you describe that white women use kind of like generally in these in this in this article, I think is almost completely used in coffee. The same idea of like, oh, we're actually all like people who care a lot about the earth. We're people who are artists or, you know, musicians. Cause coffee does kind of have this narrative of having like a, a lot of people who are more of like a counterculture ist movement, if that's a term that can be used. Um, but I think that we kind of co-opt those same structures of being like, well, we're not bad corporations. Like we're the little guys. So we are doing better things by doing this. So all the stuff that you kind of mentioned in this article really resonated with me is this is the things that we do in coffee as well. Um, another thing we do in coffee that's a big thing is that we love uh, romanticizing this idea of traveling to origin is and that's how like it's talked about like it's not even a specific origin it's just like we travel to origin and the idea that like baristas or roasters or any other coffee professional needs to travel to origin to have like a life-changing experience and i and that's it's constant that's something that everybody in the coffee industry talks about and it's something that's lauded as this thing you must do at some point i think one of the articles i even sent you earlier was just about like the six reasons why you must go to origin and it's it's absurd and i wonder what you think of that like what when i say like that kind of narrative that we have in coffee like it feels like there are alarm bells going off well one question is is that uh, those you know the people who are being targeted by you know this kind of um pressure to go to origin or whatever the fuck is that for that's just for like baristas and growers and stuff or is it just for people who like coffee for it's, everybody. It's definitely centered. Sorry, go ahead. No, you, you're, you're answering my question. I'm sorry. It's specifically okay, no, the, the people who are selling at the baristas and stuff. 
it's definitely centered towards folks who work in the coffee industry. This idea that you have to go to origin to somehow understand something about coffee or that you have to like meet a farmer to understand, like it'll suddenly like change everything about your perspective on coffee. And that's something that's talked about a lot is the idea that like you go to Colombia or you go to see a farmer in Nicaragua and suddenly like your understanding of coffee is somehow better. But that narrative also is centered very much around the consumer end of coffee, around baristas, around roasters, around people in Western countries. It's never talked about it the other way around. It's not like a farmer's, we don't, we don't spin the narrative of like farmers should travel to Western countries to see how coffee, their coffee is being consumed. There's no cyclical understanding of like the whole, the whole chain of events from, from being grown to actually being consumed. It's very much like we as the baristas, we as the roasters, we as the people buying the coffee and with the means to buy this coffee are the ones that need this like enriching experience. It seems like the same thing that happens in, in kind of every industry where I feel like any excuse to travel for, you know, people who want to have an adventure, they will use that and say that it's for a learning experience or something else. Come on, you know, any person who goes to Colombia, like, you're going to do some coke, you're going to go to the beach, you know, you might go to the coffee farm, and then you'll make it all about that. But uh, you, you, you just want to travel as, it, tourism is about consumption. It's about your own experience. You can read a book, you can talk to coffee farmers, you can talk to Colombians, we're all, they're all here. Wherever you are, there's Colombians, you know, you can find them. You don't need to, you know, spend your money and have, it's all about you. It's not about them and your connection to them. It's all about you. Um, so it just seems very, you know, uh, centered on the self and the entitlement that, that I was talking about. Other, um, we could talk about this in, in other spaces. You know, my, I'm writing um, a piece. I'm sorry. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. All right. Did it affect that whole sentence um i don't think too badly okay um this like that connects to that's the same conversation that is had in a lot of different spaces for example um i have i have this piece that is coming out in bitch magazine this summer in the travel issue um about um spiritual tourism and ayahuasca tourism and it seems like the kind of it, it's the same thing everywhere you know you need a, a an excuse to go somewhere else you know, you found an authentic healer, shaman, um, and you want to go to that place to kind of, uh, it, there's like, it's necessary, you know, that whole language of like, you have to do this, you know, or you are so separated from what you were talking about. I feel like it's, it's the white guilt talking as well, where it's, um, uh, you're not a real, you know, XYZ, unless you do this, you know, you're not a real barista or whatever. Um, unless you go to these places, that's what's going to um, make you a, a for real legit authority on whatever you're selling. Um, so, yeah, that's what it seems like to me. It's just, you know, you're doing it because you want to do it. And then when you're done doing it, then you can hold that over all the other people in your industry and just be like, well, I went to origin. You know, what did you do? You know, so it just seems like more of a competitive, you know, authenticity kind of collection <laughs> kind of thing. You know, I went there. I know what I'm talking about. You know, um, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't have to happen. I understand. I do understand, like, wanting to see how things are made and produced and wanting to understand, how, you know, that whole process. 
But if you really deeply understood and cared, um, which I always think starts with reading and research at home um, and talking to actual people who are there around you, um, then I think that you would uh, you would have to confront, you know, the glaring, um, you know, power uh, difference in traveling into that place in, in general and what you're doing. You know, if you're going to go to origin and see these things, wouldn't that kind of change your view of what you're doing? Um, how does that inform, you know, how you think about coffee and race and place and migration and how, you know, people in Colombia, they don't, they don't drink, you know, their own coffee. You know, it's all for y'all. Um, it's This is for exportation. So if there's not any kind of reflection on that, then it, it, it reveals that these trips are not really about what they're, you know, pretending. It's not about caring about anybody else. It's just kind of about using it as currency to hold up against others. So you talked about reading about a country before you go to visit it and, you know, talking to people who are there or people who are from there. Like you said, they're if you're going to go to a country like Colombia, like you can find other other Colombians like that exist. So I wonder if you have any other suggestions for people when they do travel, because obviously travel is going to happen. Like you travel, I travel. Like how how can we be better, I guess, consumers of travel? Because ultimately, I think you're right. Like tourism is about consumption. And there is like there is like a me aspect in every travel move I make. So like how can we be just more reflective around about the world around us. I don't really believe that. I know that people are going to travel anyway, but I don't push that. Like, I don't, I think people should stay home. I think people should travel less. I, I don't want to tell people how to travel ethically or sustainably or all those buzzwords. Um, I think they should travel less and you should stop going to places where your, your dollar is more powerful. You have more power over local people. You're feeding an industry that is problematic um, that in general, in general, that's what I believe. Of course, there's nuance and let me get into it. Um, it's important that, um, you don't, you, first of all, don't go to a place that people are actively asking you not to go to or feed into. Um, a lot of native Hawaiians don't want people to come to Hawaii. Um, a lot of people in Peru, like they don't want, like if you keep going to Machu Picchu, it's going to be ruined. Like it's being ruined over time. It's going to end. Um, the, you know, maybe it, the ayahuasca tourism, you got to chill out on the Amazon. Like the Amazon's fucked up enough, like leave it alone a little bit, you know, find your healing or something elsewhere. There's a, that's what I feel like the, there's ex excuses to travel. You know, my, my, um, I like to discuss the intentions around it. Why, why are you traveling somewhere else? Why this place? And why do you want to do that there? Can't you do it somewhere else? Can't you do it at home? Um, things like that. I just want to, I want to understand why people want to do it in the first place. And if you really have a conversation with yourself around that, then I think it will actually stop you from going to certain places or make you rethink about how you engage with others when you're doing this. One way is if you're going to go somewhere where mostly people of color are, you know, don't stay in hotels or hostels or resorts that are owned by foreigners who are wealthy, um, who have a monopoly in that place. Try to, you know, pay uh, local people, families who have, you know, their own kind of, uh, you know, industry set up a local, a smaller one, maybe whatever, just don't funnel money to foreigners, you basically should just stay home. 
um, there's a lot of repercussions to that in the local place. It drives up costs. It drives up inflation. You know, you're using a lot of things that are imported because you want the same things that you have at home. Again, you should just stay home. If you're going to go far away and use a jacuzzi or whatever, um, and, you know, eat McDonald's and drink Starbucks, stay the fuck home. Um, you're, you're making things so much harder for people in other places. And why are you going to specific places anyway? Why is tourism so big in places like Jamaica, um, DR, um, Hawaii? You know, why? There, it, there is a huge imperialist and colonialist problem with those places that, you know, paved the way for you to be there for a huge resort industry to take place. You know, Jamaicans depend, they, they, they wake up every day. I'm being very general, sorry, Jamaicans, but a lot of them depend on this industry, you know, driving y'all around, cleaning up the hotels, you know, doing the sex tourism, selling stuff. You know, you have to think about how a whole country of people or community of people, um, are, are you depend on your dollar to you know just do basic things it's not like it's enough money you were talking about this earlier with coffee where it's like oh we're helping the farmers or we you know we know them we we want to help them this is a good thing for them um it's better than what the corporations are doing it may be better than the corporations are doing but saying that you're helping somebody or you know i'm gonna go travel you know isn't this better for the economy no that's a lie also that's just marketing that is you know, what you're saying is these people exist to serve you, you know, that's, that's, that's how it is, you know, and that's how we are seen uh, throughout the world. Again, I'm generalizing, but you know, people of color here in the United States, what are we doing in New York? You have the same people raising your kids, you know, um, cleaning up your apartments, you know, walking your dogs, you know, you know, being your doorman, you know, when, when tourists have to think about who they see as, you know, servers and why you think that you are in a place to be served. Um, and, uh, I understand, you know, a need for luxury. Like I am saying, I'm going to, you know, go with my family this weekend. I want to, you know, take my mom for a mother's day weekend and stay in a nice hotel. But, um, is, you know, think about how that affects people around there. That's why I think we, I feel like introspection and intentionality is so important and critical thought. And those are the things that in travel and tourism, it's like they're allergic to it. You know, because then you're going to have to talk about un uncomfortable things and people want luxurious vacations. It's about luxury. And that's why in travel writing, if it doesn't expand to include things that are not about leisure, then we're not going to ever have a space there. And that's another way of kind of segregating and keeping us kind of down, you know. And I'm, I'm bringing up all these things so that people have examples like think critically, you know, think critically about everything, please. You know, um, it, when it comes to this stuff, it really matters. You know, it really hits home. This is really, this is real shit that's happening to people that you're affecting, you know? I think everything you said is amazing. <laughs> and I want to ask you so many more questions, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. So before we wrap things up, is there, how can people connect with you? If they, how can people follow your work, find you? Mm -hmm. You can Google decolonizing travel culture, and I think that you would find me. A lot of people, I you might not be able to spell my name, baniamor.com. I'm sure they can see it in, when you post this on the mm. internet. Um, I'm on Twitter at baniamor, uh, Instagram baniamor. My website is baniamor.com. I already said that. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm social media. Look for me on social media. I'm there. Um, I have a book club. If you are a person of color and you want to read travel writing by people of color, we meet on the internet every month, uh, read a new book every month. Uh, I have that space. 
and yeah, uh, I have like a you know a short decolonize and travel teaser. You can find that on Facebook or YouTube. Those are the projects I have going on. Those are my shameless plugs. Uh, yeah, that's how you can find me. I cannot recommend any more highly that you should look up Bonnie's work. Um, you can go to their website and you very generously link to so many amazing articles that you've wrote that you've written and it's it's really made me think a lot about like why why I travel and really examine the coffee industry a, a lot more critically and I th- thank you for like putting all of that work out there and for being willing to call people out on their bullshit um so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us um you can find Bonnie a more pretty much by writing their name into the internet and you'll find a lot of articles and also Bonnie's website. Um, you can find boss barista online, boss And you can email us at boss at gmail.com. If you have any other questions, um, again, you should have probably stopped this podcast like five or six times to read Bonnie's work. Can't recommend it more. Anyway, that's it for boss barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez and stay tuned for more stuff. We'll be here next week. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.